one of the most important contributors to the Reformation was not a reformer. He was a politician. He was a man who founded the University of Wittenberg in 1502. That's the place where Martin Luther served as a professor. He is the one, to follow a couple of examples from Stephen Nichols, he is the one who supported Luther when the 95 Thesis was posted on the door of the castle church. He is the one who refused to send Luther to Rome when Pope Leo X demanded that he would be. He was the man who made sure that Luther had safe passage both to and from the Diet of Worms. And he is the one who enacted a kidnapping of Luther after the Diet of Worms because he was concerned about Luther's safety post that diet. His name was Frederick III, also known as Frederick the Wise. He was an elector of Saxony. So those who live in light of the Reformation's impact on society or on sound theology have individuals not only like the Reformers to thank, as it were, but unknown contributors like Frederick the Wise as well. I say that because it's kind of like that when you open your Bible and you go to Ephesians or Colossians or Philemon. You're thankful that those scriptures are there. You're thankful that Paul wrote them and the Holy Spirit inspired them, but what can often be missed is that a man by the name of Tychicus carried them. He had that responsibility, and along with Onesimus, to bring those epistles to Ephesus, to bring them to the church of Colossae, and to bring them to Philemon. And we're happy that he was faithful. He didn't lose them. He didn't get sidetracked by something else. He didn't like keep them or, or like, keep them in a place where he couldn't find them or so on. He was faithful to deliver them to the appointed destinations that they were to go to. He was faithful. And one of the things that I hope that you will see after today's message, or one of the things that I hope will happen, is that when you hear Tychicus' name, you associate that name with faithfulness. Faithfulness. You'll be aware of some of his contributions to the work of Christ, but that there would be a kind of name association that happens. See, I think that name associations, in light of name recognition in the scriptures, can be tremendously helpful. When you hear certain names in the scriptures, it could spur you on towards holiness or usefulness or fruitfulness. And when you hear other names, it could spur you on to go away from unbelief or complaining or murmuring. Let me illustrate the latter with three names that you might not be familiar with, but hopefully you will be after this. If I said the names Shemua, Egal, and Gadi, I wonder what ideas are coming to your mind. When you hear Shamua, you might be thinking of an orca down at SeaWorld. Like, is he talking about Shamu? No, I'm not talking about Shamu. Shamua. When I say Egal, you're probably not even making a connection. You're like, Egal? Like, I'm not, I don't really know an Egal. And when I said Gaudi, you're probably wondering, did he say Gaudi? Is he talking about like the former organized crime boss? Is that what he's referencing in this moment? No, I'm not referencing them. Those are three names that belong with seven other names. Seven other names that usually aren't too familiar to us. Shaphat, Palti, Gadiel, Amniel, Sethor, Nabi, and Gauel. Those are the names of the ten spies that had the responsibility to go spy out the land of promise. But they came back, unlike Joshua and Caleb, they came back bringing a report of unbelief. And you remember that when that report of unbelief went into the camp of Israel, it spread like a contagion. And that was the last straw, if you will. Then that generation was appointed and judged to die in the wilderness. 
So when I think of names like those three names, Shamua, Egal, Gadi, I'm thinking of unbelief and the danger it could be, the contagion that it is, and it makes me want to run in the direction of trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that old hymn, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus? Remember that part of the hymn that says, Oh, for grace to trust him more? It's as though when you hear Shamua, Egal, and Palti, and names like that, Gadi, and so on, you think, okay, I want to be somebody who trusts the ever-living God. I trust his promises. I take him at his word. Well, hopefully today, after you hear the story of Tychicus, as it's told to us in scriptures, unpacked, you will think of faithfulness. Not faithfulness with a capital F. There's only one who is perfectly faithful, our triune God. But there are examples in the scriptures of imperfect men following the perfect example of faithfulness, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to consider Tychicus today under the following rubric. He was a faithful servant. That's number one. That's what we're going to look at. Number two, we're going to see that he was faithful in the little things. Number three, we're going to see that he was faithful over time. And number four, we're going to see that he was faithful to oversee. So he was a faithful servant. He was faithful in the little things. He was faithful over time. And he was faithful to oversee. And then we'll close with seeing the greatest motivation to pursue faithfulness. So first, Tychicus was a faithful servant. That was the title that the Apostle Paul used for him when he referenced him towards the end of his letters to the Ephesians and Colossians. As Paul approached the end of his letter to the Ephesians, for instance, he said the following. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 and 22. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. So there's Paul, another great, albeit imperfect example, concerned about the Ephesians. You go through Paul's epistle to the Ephesians and you see that he was concerned that their knowledge of his tribulations, particularly his imprisonment, could cause them to lose heart and become discouraged. We see this very clearly in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 13, where he told them, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations, which are for you, which is your glory. So he was concerned for them. So what did he do? Well, you read on in Ephesians 3, and you find that he prayed for them. Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. But he also wanted to provide them with an update. You say, how would the update actually bring, him some, bring the Ephesians some measure of comfort? Well, I think first and foremost, they would know he was okay. They probably heard that he got arrested, and when he provides the update through Tychicus, they get to hear Paul is okay. I'll tell you my hypotheses as well. My hypothesis is, when you look at Paul's letter to the Philippians, you get a little bit of an idea of probably what he wanted the Ephesians to know. Go through Philippians chapter 1, for instance, and he's telling the Philippians that even though he's imprisoned, it's turned out as an opportunity for the furtherance of the gospel. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 other Christians had become bold because of his chains, and they were becoming more bold in Christ. Those who were in the palace guard, they got to know that his chains were in Christ, so they likely got to hear the gospel. And even some people who were in Caesar's family or Caesar's household came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and sent greetings to the Philippians. He probably wanted the Ephesians to see, to some degree, the locus of his focus. It wasn't comfort. It was the gospel's advancement. 
And even though he had the obstacle of imprisonment, he saw it as an opportunity to get the gospel into places it might not otherwise go. But he wanted them to know that he was okay, and likely he wanted them to know those things. And so what did he do? He entrusted a man by the name of Tychicus with this task. To carry this epistle, the epistle to the Ephesians and Colossians and to Philemon, and to communicate this update to them that would comfort them. You don't give that kind of task to just anybody. You don't appoint somebody who has been unfaithful and everything else, so to speak, to such an important task and say, you know what, let's just give him a try with this. He's failed at that and he's failed at this. Let's give him this opportunity. No, you appoint somebody who has been faithful. You know that if you entrust a serious responsibility to somebody who's unreliable, you are making an appointment with pain. It's kind of the idea of Proverbs chapter 25, verse 19. Doubtless Paul knew the Proverbs. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. You're making an appointment with pain if you entrust serious responsibilities to someone who is unfaithful. Matthew Henry said, Confidence in an unfaithful man is painful and vexatious. When we put any stress on him, he not only fails, but he makes us feel for it. And one of the ways in which you can honor the Lord right now where you are at, is you can serve well at the tasks that you are given. You can execute your responsibilities with excellence. You're not to be like the son in the parable of the two sons, the one to whom the father said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he said, I will. But afterward regretted it and didn't. Matthew 21, verses 28 and 29. You're not to be someone who is faithful only when it's convenient. You are to be, by God's grace, somebody who's reliable, trustworthy, and faithful. Somebody who's committed, committed to corporate worship, committed to using your abilities to advance the kingdom of Christ, committed to using what God has given you to build up other saints in the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to be somebody that can be relied upon and consistent, even when, and I would say especially when, you have an excuse not to be. In the work, Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission The account is told of how Hudson Taylor was supposed to speak at an event in uh, Birmingham, England, when all of a sudden a great storm hit. Great storm hits, and the hostess of the event, there was a torrential downpour, and she ends up trying to dissuade Hudson Taylor from even going to where he was supposed to speak, telling him nobody's going to show up because everybody's going to assume that it was canceled. And Hudson Taylor is recorded as asking, but was it not announced for tonight? And indeed it was. And so he said, I must go, even if there is no one but the doorkeeper. It would have been easier not to go. He had a convenient excuse. Nobody's going to probably be there anyway. It's going to probably even be a small crowd. Maybe even one person shows up. It's not that much of a big deal. No, he saw it as a big deal to keep the commitment that he had made. Even if one person showed up. And I would even say, even if nobody showed up, the idea that he was going to walk out that godly character and say, I made a commitment. I'm going to be true to that commitment. And he did that. And I think Tychicus was that kind of individual. He was a faithful, reliable, trustworthy servant of the Lord. Three other quick thoughts about Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 21 and 22. I think part of the reason why Tychicus was a faithful servant was because he saw himself as a servant. You're probably not going to be a faithful servant if you don't see yourself as a servant. If you see yourself as somebody who is to be served then you probably won't be a good servant because you're expecting other people to serve you rather than having a mindset of serving other people. And now it's good for us to be reminded of this because this is Christianity 101. 
Our Savior took the form of a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He is the one who humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, and became faithful to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he calls us to be servants, serving one another in love. Second of the three quick thoughts. Both in Ephesians 6 and in Colossians 4, Tychicus is also called a beloved brother. More literally, the beloved brother, which suggests that he was probably somewhat well-known among the churches. And I love how the pulpit commentary notes that the two qualities by which he was known was both lovableness and fidelity. When I read that, in like real time, I'm thinking, that's neat. Lovableness? That's like not like a quality that we like aspire to. But the pulpit commentary makes that comment about Tychicus that he was not only a person who was faithful, but he was also somebody who was lovable. He was the beloved brother. And I just want to encourage you. You want to be that. You want to be somebody who's, if you will, easy to love. Not somebody who's hard to love. And you make it easier the more that you are a servant and have a servant mindset and you're seeking to love others and you're Christ-centered and you're others-minded. A uh, third of these quick thoughts is this. He was a faithful minister, we're told, in the Lord. So what he did and the service that he rendered was, as one commentator noted, altogether conditioned, characterized, and animated by his union with Christ and the people of Christ. So when you think of Tychicus, think of a faithful servant and be inspired to be faithful with the responsibilities that God has entrusted to you. And when you take on responsibilities, that you see those tasks through with excellence. Okay, so that's number one. Tychicus, faithful servant. Number two, Tychicus was faithful in the little things. He was faithful in the little things. Now, the first time that we see Tychicus referenced, it's in a verse that I'm pretty sure um, you've never seen on a Christian t-shirt. I don't think there's a mug that has this verse on it anywhere in all of Christendom. I don't think anyone's ever called it their life verse. It's Acts chapter 20, verse 4. First time we hear of this man. It simply reads like this. And so Pater of Berea, who in other translations we find out that he's the son of a man named Porus, accompanied him, that's Paul, to Asia. Also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. Acts chapter 20, verse 4. Now, it's not a verse that many people are going to read and say, there it is right there. I am impacted. I know what I'm going to do today. I'm going to serve others with zealousness and zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you start thinking this through, there's a lot here. See, the context of this is likely that these individuals were selected to represent different churches where they were from. And they joined Paul on his journey to Jerusalem as he was likely delivering an offering to the church, among other things. And so these were likely trusted representatives and individuals. So what does that mean? That means long before Tychicus would have the other responsibilities that we're going to see in the text of Scripture, he was faithful in the little things, like serving in the local church where he was. This is our first introduction to, uh, introduction to him. And he is likely the representative of the local church where he's from because he had been faithful in the little things. Another example of this is Timothy. Timothy, in Acts chapter 16, when Paul came to Derby and Lystra, there was a certain disciple who was there named Timothy. 
And we're told in Acts 16, verse 2, that Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. So that means that if Paul called Timothy a young man about 10 to 14 years later, when he wrote 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, and said, let no one despise your youth. Now, according to commentators like Bill Mounts, that could be up to like 40 years old. But that means that he was about 10 to 14 years younger than he was when Paul wrote 1 Timothy to him. So he might have been in his late teens, he might have been in his early 20s, maybe his mid-20s, but the point is this, long before he would be that one that Paul would say, I have no one else like him, and Paul would send him to Corinth, Paul would send him to Ephesus, long before that, he was faithful in the churches where he was serving, and he had a good reputation among those churches. It was like that for Tychicus, it was like that for Timothy, and it was like that for Charles Haddon Spurgeon as well. In his autobiography, a little bit early on in the biography, about 49 pages in, he talks about how 11 years ago, at the time that he was writing this, he said, I was addressing Sunday school children, and these alone. Ten, nine years ago, I was preaching in little insignificant rooms here and there, and generally going out and coming back on foot, and occasionally getting a lift in a cart. So before this man would speak to thousands... And before he would preach in large buildings in England and so on, he was found preaching and teaching in small gatherings in obscure country places. He goes on to say, if one wishes to be a steward in God's house, he must first be prepared to serve as a scullion. You're like, what's a scullion? Just another word for servant. He must first be prepared to serve as a scullion in the kitchen and content to wash out the pots and clean the boots. So I just want to remind you, Whatever the Lord has called you to, you might esteem it as a little thing, but you are to treat it as a significant thing. And it may be something that God uses to prepare you for other responsibilities. But whatever those little things are, execute those responsibilities with excellence and faithfulness. And let me just tell you, if you're waiting for the big things, but are unfaithful in the current things that you perceive to be little, I hope for your sake the big things never come. Because to use language from Luke chapter 16, verse 10, if you are unjust in the little, you'll be unjust with much. If you're faithful in the little, you'll be faithful in much. And furthermore, I think you'll come to find as you go through the scriptures that the little things that we think are little are so often so much bigger than we even think. And in some cases, they in fact are the big things of life. Take, for instance, the responsibility that if any man is to serve in the office of overseer slash elder slash pastor, those words are essentially interchangeable, that such a one has to have a responsible a household in which he's executing faithful responsibility. He has to take care of the household that he is entrusted with. He has to lead his house well. He has to make sure that his children are under control and they're not unruly and so on. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. So even as he has the big responsibility of serving his family and saying, I have a responsibility to lead my wife. I have a responsibility to teach my children. I have a responsibility to wash my wife with the watering of the word. I have this responsibility. It's a big thing. It is the big thing. And yet at the same time, it can often be and is a qualifying step that the Lord looks at to say, if this person is faithful in that, then he could be entrusted with other responsibilities like in the local church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So it's a big responsibility in itself. It's a big and precious one. And it's often, and biblically it is, 
connected with being a stepping stone towards other precious responsibilities like serving in the local church. So I just want to tell you, whatever your current volunteer capacity is, whatever you're doing, in your parenting, in your marriage, at your job, with your time and resources and abilities, in whatever you do, be faithful. Tychicus was faithful in the little things. Third point, Tychicus was also faithful over time. Faithful over time. He didn't exhibit, if you will, flash in the pan faithfulness. He had a track record of faithfulness. It wasn't a faithfulness that was here today and gone tomorrow. That wouldn't be faithfulness. He was a man who was faithful and had an enduring faithfulness. Well, where do we see this? Where do we get this picture from? The first time you're introduced to him is in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. That's approximately, give or take, 54 A.D. So that's the first time we're introduced to him, yet we know that he was faithfully serving wherever he was before that. Now as you go through the scriptures, you come to find that he would be with Paul in the work to come, beginning in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. You find out that he would be with Paul during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. You find out that he would travel to Ephesus, to Colossae, and to Philemon. You find out that he would be with Paul when Paul wrote his letter to Titus. You find out that he would even be with Paul near the very end of his life, perhaps around 67 A.D. Paul ends up saying in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Antichicus I have sent to Ephesus. He likely was going to take the spot of Timothy in Ephesus. So you see a track record of faithfulness. He was faithful over the long haul. It wasn't a here today and gone tomorrow kind of faithfulness. And I just want to say in a world in which there could be undue emphasis placed upon success, in the kingdom of God, the proper emphasis is placed upon faithfulness. As has been said, you know this, when Jesus says, well done, he doesn't say, well done, good and successful servant. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You think of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Paul said it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. So I just want to shift the paradigm for a moment to, for, for us all to think that faithfulness equals success. And success equals faithfulness. Now, God may have accompanying fruitfulness, and doubtless he will to some degree or another. He will have accompanying fruitfulness. But you do your part to sow seed, as it were, but you're dependent upon him to make the sun shine and to bring the rain and to bring the increase. Your call and my call is to be faithful. Think of Saul, right? In 1 Samuel chapter 15, he was successful, if you will, in defeating the Amalekites, but he wasn't faithful. He didn't execute that task the way the Lord had told him to do it. And he was seriously rebuked for it. Faithfulness, at the end of the day, is the true barometer of success. And I just want to say, don't underestimate the significance of your faithfulness over time. When we display faithfulness in our marriages, when we display faithfulness towards our children, when we display faithfulness towards our brethren in this local church, when we are faithful to our responsibilities, we are imaging the, albeit in a creaturely imperfect way, the perfect faithfulness of our God, who is perfectly consistent, perfectly faithful. And just as a little bit of an aside, a little bit of note, the ripple effects of faithfulness over time, I think, this is an opinion, so just my opinion, I think it can compound in a person's life. I think in my own life, 
besides, I would say, the Word of God, the intercession of Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the prayers of the saints, and my family, I don't know if there's anything that has spurred me on more or encouraged me more or lifted me up when I was down more than the faithfulness of fellow servants of the Lord Jesus Christ and me being a beneficiary of their faithfulness. Now, there's many examples that I can give, but since I'm coming upon the 20-year anniversary of knowing Mark, I will use him as a quick example. I came to meet Mark back in, I'm not sure, it might be October or November, 2000, uh, not 2023, I just met him, in two, <laughs> 2003. And when I met him, I don't know, we were trying to remember, I asked him last night, when I first met him in the student ministry at the church that I began to serve as a uh, youth worker at, um, I was like, I thought that he might have been serving in either PowerPoint or doing the projector, not sure. If it wasn't then, it happened not too long after. So not too long after knowing him, we both were serving in ministry together, me as a youth worker and him as a student who was in high school yet was volunteering. And now for about 20 years, I've served alongside of him and I've gotten to see his faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, his faithfulness to the different environments where he's been, different churches, using his gifts as a high school student, using his gift, as a college student, using his gift, serving alongside of me in music ministry, serving alongside in parachurch ministry, serving here since we started here back in November 2012. And I am a beneficiary of such faithfulness, not only his ministerial faithfulness, but his faithfulness as a friend. There's times, and you probably even see it, some of you who are at a Wednesday night prayer meeting on Thanksgiving Eve, I was just thinking of him, and I was thinking of Christina, and just their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, and how I've gotten to see that over the years, and been a beneficiary of their love and faithfulness as a friend, and it just encouraged me. And there are other examples I could use in this room, I just used them as a couple of examples. Remember, it's the 20 year anniversary of me knowing Mark. So don't underestimate the impact you can have on people's lives just by being a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, loving the church and loving the people that God has placed you alongside. It's a big deal. I'm telling you, not to be redundant, it's not about me, but I'm just using me as an example in this moment. I have been so encouraged and empowered by the Holy Spirit afresh as I've thought of the faithfulness of other servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. My opinion is, my opinion, that the effects of that so often compound over time as the years pass. Well, Tychicus was a man who was faithful over time. Last point with regards to Tychicus is this. Tychicus was faithful to oversee. Faithful to oversee. I'm excited to go here. Uh, I want to make a simple point here. In Titus chapter 3, verse 12, we see another reference to Tychicus. The reference simply reads like this. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus... Be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. So the quick context of that verse is this. Titus was left in Crete. You see that in Titus chapter 1. Paul left him there to appoint elders in every city. But now, at the end of the letter, we find that Paul is telling Titus to be diligent to come to where Paul was at Nicopolis. And Paul's got two options of people that he's going to send to oversee the work. It's either going to be Artemis or it's going to be Tychicus. We don't know who it was. It was going to be either of them. But the point is, Tychicus was ready to oversee the work in Crete. Now, again, this is my opinion, but I think it's a well-founded opinion. I don't think that Paul would send somebody to appoint elders and overseers who himself was not qualified to oversee. I'm arguing he sent somebody there named Tychicus 
who met the qualifications of the elders that he was going to appoint, continuing the work that Titus was meant to do. So with that being said, with making that observation, I want to make the following application. It is my conviction that every man who is in Christ Jesus should aspire to meet the qualifications of an elder, overseer, or pastor as seen in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. I think every man, not that every man is going to be an elder, overseer, or pastor. You've got to have a spirit-wrought compulsion, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. You've got to have that desire. But I think that every man who is in Christ Jesus should look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, and say, you know what? I want to use the plumb line of Scripture, and I want to be somebody who would be qualified to serve in that position if needed. I mean, when you look at the qualifications, you can see that it's not a crazy thing at all. We walked verse by verse through 1 Timothy, and you saw week after week how I would say these qualifications are calls for all by showing you other places in the scriptures where God was calling the church to manifest these qualities. It's not just elders that God wants to be blameless. He wants his people to be blameless. It's not just elders that God wants to be the husband of one wife or a one-woman man. He wants all godly men to be faithful in their marriages. It's not just elders that he wants to be gentle or not a lover of money or not given too much wine and so on. It's all godly men he wants them to be this. It's not just elders that he wants to have his children under control and managing the responsibilities of a household with dignity. It's not just elders that he wants to be um, peaceable and so on. He wants this for all all godly men. And you can listen to the series that I did on 1 Timothy, Timothy 3 and you can see that over and over again. The one nuance might be when you look at the requirement of being skilled in teaching. But then don't forget what the writer of Hebrews said to the church that he was writing to. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. By now, many of you ought to be teachers. And I think that if a man is teaching his family... He's washing his wife with the water of the word. He's discipling his children. He's going to cultivate skills in teaching, generally speaking. May not have them to serve in a local church capacity, granted. May not have the inward compulsion, but he's using 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 as a plumb line saying, I have direction. This is what I'm called to pursue. If this is grabbed onto in this church or in any church, it can be revolutionary. Because then all of a sudden, every man who is in Christ Jesus says, I have direction. I'm opening up to 1 Timothy 3. I'm asking those around me, do you see these qualities in me? Where do I need to work in my character in response to these things? And all of a sudden there's direction. I think there could be added connection. Because if somebody has this conviction, they're going to come alongside of the current eldership and they're going to say, what can I do to grow in these qualities and so on? I think that's one of the observations that we can make from Tychicus. And it could be so exciting to say, this is an aim for me. It's not that I'm going to serve in that office, but I want to be somebody who meets these qualifications because I just know that they are godly um, characteristics that ought to be found in the character of a Christian anyway. And then if God does call me to this office, I'm ready. I'm like, uh, the bench will be deep, as it were. And there'll be people who are ready to be called upon at any time. And oh, how the church of Jesus Christ, not only this one, but anyone, would be blessed by a bunch of godly men who take this conviction to heart and say, okay, 
I'm in training. I'm sitting here during the Sunday morning worship service, and I'm in training. I'm hearing the word of God, and I'm in training. I'm looking at the word of God. I'm measuring my life by it, and I'm seeing areas where I need to grow. I am going to pray about these things. I am in training. I'm on the bench, so to speak. I may not be serving in the eldership, but if God ever gives me that inward compulsion, I'm not going to be disqualified. This could change households. I'm almost done with this point in a moment, but let me just unpack it a little bit more. This could change households. So often, a man might meet the qualities of eldership in so many other capacities, but is not exercising leadership in the home. He might have a bunch of other qualities. Gentle, not given to you know, a love of money and so on and all these things, but yet he's not the one who's leading the home. Or the children are not under control. They're kind of unruly and disrespectful and so on. There could be those kind of things. And you want to say, okay, you know what? This could revolutionize my home. For as a wife, you could say, I want to come alongside of my husband and I want to make sure that he meets these qualifications. So I want to submit to and support his leadership in a godly way, as I'm told to in Ephesians 5 and so on. I think this could be revolutionary and so exciting, providing direction where some might be desiring it. Tychicus was a man who was faithful to oversee. Having qualified men ready to serve was an important component of Paul's gospel work. And it would be an important component in any church's gospel work. I want to close with asking the question, what ought to drive our pursuit of faithfulness? Tychicus is not to drive our pursuit of faithfulness. Like, at the end of the day, you're not going to go home and say, I want to be faithful to the Lord because Tychicus was faithful. And if that is your reasoning, it's not going to last too long. And if it did last too long, that would be a problem and kind of strange. <laughs> but what ought to drive you? Um, I have. Some of you have seen them. I've worn them sometimes at prayer meeting or um, small group. Um, shirts that have New Testament Greek phrases on them. For my birthday, some of you will be glad to know, I asked my family for um, shirts with Bible verses on them in English, because I found that as I was wearing New Testament Greek on my shirts, not many people were asking me what it meant. I thought more people would, and instead I felt like I was walking around speaking in an unknown tongue that people couldn't understand, and I would just do better to have the Bible verses in English. But nonetheless, I have some at home still in New Testament Greek, and I'm happy I do, and one has this simple but precious biblical phrase, hapistos theos simply means God is faithful. What ought to drive your faithfulness? Thinking about the faithfulness of the living God. You just start thinking of texts that talk about his faithfulness. The Lord is faithful who will guard you and establish you against the evil one. Like I can trust that I'm protected. He's faithful. Granted, I don't want to be foolish. I don't want to walk into snares of the enemy and so on. I want to resist temptation and pray that the Lord leads me not into temptation. But at the end of the day, the Lord is faithful who will guard me and establish me against the evil one. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you are able, but with the temptation or the trial will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You think of Psalm 36, verse 5, that says his faithfulness stretches to the skies. You think of Lamentations 3, verse 23, and you exclaim, great is his faithfulness. And that ought to drive your faithfulness. But you don't stop there. You move on to the second person of the Trinity, the eternally begotten Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is called the faithful high priest. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. He is the one who is described in Revelation as faithful and true. Revelation 19, verse 11. You know he was the one who was faithful to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
And so you see his faithfulness on your behalf and you say, that's what's driving me. Tychicus is a great imperfect example following the perfect example. But at the end of the day, what's going to motivate me? It's the faithfulness of God, the perfect consistency of God and the faithfulness of my Savior who laid his life down for me, bore the wrath that I deserve and rose from the grave so that all who believe in him, putting no trust in their works, but all of their trust in him, seeing him as the only way they have everlasting life. And you say, that's what's going to drive me. That's what drives me. Also, the faithfulness of God ought to be a primary reason to run to the gospel for anyone who hasn't. Because God is faithful to save, but he's also faithful to judge. You know he's going to be faithful to his word. When he says in places like 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 or Revelation 20 that he will judge and that the books will be opened and those who repent, do not repent and believe the gospel will be judged and so on, you know he's faithful. He's faithful to save. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He is faithful to do that. You call out to him, you truly trust in him, and in that moment you pass from death to life. He's faithful, but he's also faithful to judge. And for everyone who doesn't, there will come that point of reckoning with the fearful and dreadful lake of fire spoken of in Revelation chapter 20. It's a righteous judgment. It is. He is a righteous God. He is a holy God. And he will be faithful to do what he said he would do. But for those who believe the gospel and confess their sinfulness and their need for a savior, I want to remind you of what the Bible says. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He is faithful. And if I had to give you one additional motivation to pursue faithfulness, it would be this. For you who are in Christ, it's simply be who you are. The Bible identifies God's people as faithful. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. Be who you are. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you uh, for the example of Tychicus. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that those qualities, um, albeit imperfectly seen in him and perfectly reflected in your son, would be more and more reflected in us, Lord. That we, by your grace, would be faithful servants, faithful in the little things, faithful over time. And Father, uh, where you've called such individuals to be prepared and ready, faithful to oversee. And Father, may your faithfulness drive us. May you help us to have our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and in seeing his faithfulness towards us and your faithfulness to us, so often as we know despite us, may that spur us on to continue to run the race that is before us, to hold the plow tightly, and to be faithful with what you've given us, Lord, to do. Thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Having such great forgiveness and such a great hope is so compelling, Lord. So help us to run the race that is set before us with diligence and with faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.